0: Hello, podcast listeners. It's me. A few words before we get going. I started Bionic Planet in 2016, right after world leaders reached the Paris Climate Agreement and 11 months before my fellow countrymen shot the world in the butt by electing Donald Trump as President of the United States. My goal when I started this thing was to help people understand the global apparatuses that have emerged to help us meet the climate challenge. And today's show is an encore presentation of one of the first shows I ever did. It's from June of 2016, and it looks at the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, which are more important now than ever. And I think today's show, even though it's almost three years old, is more relevant than ever too. That's because it looks at the SDGs in the context of the global institutions that emerged from the ashes of World War II. Institutions that Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and the Koch brothers, among a whole bunch of other miscreants, are trying to destroy. We are a big, diverse planet, and we've pushed our living ecosystems to the brink. We need to work globally together if we're to fix this mess, and today we look at how we've done that in the past and how we can still do it in the future. Today's show is a bit cringe-worthy from a production standpoint, because I was just starting to experiment with sound design back then, and I had even less of a hang of it than I do now. If you're a paying patron, you won't be charged for today's show. If you're not a patron, but like what you hear and want to help me get some professional help, or at least a good part-time producer, then I encourage you to become a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Once again, that's bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. I am for the most part listener supported and you can support me for as little as one dollar per month. And now on with the show. In 2006, a non-profit organization called World Vision started helping people in Ethiopia plant trees because trees slow climate change by inhaling the world's most common greenhouse gas, namely carbon dioxide, and exhaling oxygen. But World Vision is not an environmental group. It's a humanitarian aid organization and it planted those trees to help poor rural communities earn money by helping companies reduce their carbon footprints by essentially making it possible for those companies to lock their greenhouse gas emissions in trees. The plan worked environmentally and socially and the Soto Reforestation Project as it's called is now pulling 22,000 tons of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere every year. That's enough to offset 22,000 round-trip airplane flights between Chicago and Berlin Socially, it's generating 2,000 jobs, while the trees have also captured water and pushed it into the ground, enough of it to replenish 12 springs. And they've injected enough nitrogen into the soil to ratchet up fertility for about 80% of the farms. As a result, families that had been getting by on just two meals a day are now eating three square. Last year, nine years after the Soto Reforestation Project began, the United Nations came up with 17 so-called Sustainable Development Goals, which, among other things, guide the lending strategies of massive financing institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund through the year 2030. 150 world leaders signed off on the SDGs, and some companies are using them as a sort of global business plan.
1: My ideal goal will be that everybody will run its business plan and its objectives along the Sustainable Development Goals, that we would actually publish our annual reports to show what contributions we make to the Sustainable Development Goals.
0: That's Paul Pullman, the famously green CEO of food giant Unilever, speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland earlier this year. We'll hear more from him in a bit, but first here's something really interesting. Shortly after all these world leaders agreed on the Sustainable Development Goals, in other words, when the goals were still fresh and new, an environmental consultancy called CO2OL drew up a list of all the benefits that the SOTO Reforestation Project had already generated over the past decade, and they laid them side-by-side with the Sustainable Development Goals, which are essentially future aspirations. You know what they found? They found that this decade-year-old carbon project already fulfilled 11 of the 17 spanking new sustainable development goals. Now, in the grand scheme of things, offsetting 22,000 transatlantic round trips isn't going to fix the climate mess. But there are literally hundreds of these projects scattered around the world according to the most recent Ecosystem Marketplace report on forest carbon finance. Some of them are saving endangered forests, and others are planting trees like this one. But all of them are mopping up carbon dioxide, while most of them are selling offsets to raise money to help poor rural communities adapt to climate change. But here's something else a lot of them have in common. Many of these projects are struggling to break even, while at the same time Investors are looking to put their money into endeavors that align with the Sustainable Development Goals. Let's go back to Davos, where Paul Pullman was speaking. UN General Secretary Ban Ki-moon was there too, and he had just come from an event called the World Future Energy Summit. It was held in Abu Dhabi, in one of the world's most oil-rich countries, and it focused on the economy of tomorrow the decarbonized economy, the one without oil. They had a video link to high schools all over the world.
1: One group of high school in Somalia is working on solar panels. By video, one of the young women, young student, pointed to a grassy area. She said, I quote, this is where I will put the solar panels, and it is where my future begins. It was quite uh, moving. On that patch of grass, you see the link between climate and development.
0: Moving, yes. But that Somali schoolyard isn't the only place where you see the link between climate and development.
1: Around the world, more and more people understand that climate resilience supports progress. Trillions of dollars will be invested in infrastructure in the coming years.
0: trillions of dollars. Today on Bionic Planet, the link between climate change, sustainable development, and carbon trading. How Ethiopian farmers, European investors, and all of us can avoid getting completely whacked by climate change, and maybe even come out ahead, if we learn to navigate the new reality of life on a managed planet. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are
2: proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth, we broke it, we own it, and nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology, geoengineering, are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a new podcast of the Anthropocene, the modern epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear one way that these sustainable development goals fit into this equation.
2: Too many of us think it is impossible. Too many think it is unreal. But that is a dangerous, defeatist belief.
0: That's a recording of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. It's from 1963, the year he was assassinated. And he's talking about peace. But he may as well have been talking about climate change, which is why I'm using him to open a segment that we call We'll Always Have Paris. We'll Always Have Paris, as in the Paris Climate Agreement, which went from hero to zero in the minds of many because it doesn't magically turn us all into selfless tree huggers. Kennedy delivered this speech at the American University seven weeks before signing the Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty with the United Kingdom and the Soviet Union. He signed that treaty in August of 1963, nine months after the United States and Soviet Union almost went to nuclear war over the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it was just one day shy of the 18th anniversary of the day the U.S. dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Nuclear proliferation was the climate change of its day, and I learned of this particular speech because of a guy named Jeffrey Sachs. He's an economist who helped Poland and a bunch of other countries navigate their way out of communism and into functioning economies. Today, he teaches sustainable development at Columbia University, and he offers a lot of his courses online for free. They're excellent, by the way. He called his article, Why the Sustainable Development Goals Matter, and in it he described the Limited Test Ban Treaty, or LTBT, as, quote, a landmark agreement to slow the Cold War arms race that would have been unthinkable only months earlier. And it was. It happened in part because, well, to be blunt, both countries sort of crapped their pants after Cuba, and they recognized the need to work together. Though the LTBT certainly did not end the Cold War, he writes, it provided proof that negotiation and agreement were possible and laid the groundwork for future PACs. Now, back to Kennedy.
2: Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man.
0: Kennedy was not an enemy of hopes and dreams. After all, he weaved them himself and got us to the moon five years after his death. But in this speech he warns against the danger of embracing magical thinking, and he implores us all to
2: focus instead on a more practical, more attainable peace based not on a sudden revolution in human nature but on a gradual evolution in human institutions.
0: Based not on a sudden revolution in human nature but on a gradual evolution of human institutions
2: on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interests of all concerned.
0: A series of concrete actions and effective agreements which are in the interests of all concerned. The Paris Agreement isn't perfect and it isn't neat and tidy like the Kyoto Protocol was. But that's one reason the Kyoto Protocol failed. The Paris Agreement is complex and often appears nebulous But it's also a workable, all-encompassing bundle of thousands of individual agreements hammered out through decades of scientific research and political negotiation, and it interconnects with thousands of other agreements and national laws. It isn't just a, quote, small step in the right direction, as the writer Naomi Klein described it, but rather a comprehensive framework within which we can now take the giant steps that are needed. But Sachs didn't cite Kennedy's speech for the passages I just highlighted. Instead, he cited it for something the president said about the role of goals, like the strategic development goals, in galvanizing public support for complex initiatives like nuclear disarmament and the Paris Agreement.
2: By defining our goal more clearly, by making it seem more manageable and less remote, We can help all people to see it, to draw hope from it, and to move irresistibly towards it.
0: That's what the SDGs do. There are 17 of them, and they include things like ending poverty, ensuring good education, and building pipes, bridges, roads, and floodplains that will work in a changing climate. Basically, it's stuff you can't argue with. But how do you get there? First, by breaking the broad goals down into specific targets and the SDGs are broken down into 169 of those and each of them has billions of dollars in financing attached to it. Goal 13, for example, is the one dealing with climate change and it delineates five specific goals from integrating climate change into national policies to helping people understand the science. But it also explicitly recognizes the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or UNFCCC as the primary vehicle for fixing this mess. And the UNFCCC has about a million financing mechanisms embedded in it.
3: Leaving the phase of negotiations behind. This is a new era of collaboration. The whole world is united in its commitment to the global goals embodied in the Paris Agreement, as well as to the means by which to achieve them.
0: That's Cristiana Figueres, the Costa Rican diplomat who has steered the UNFCCC since July of 2010. She's stepping down this summer, but she was still in charge at last month's Climate Talks in Bonn, where she told reporters to essentially hold onto their hats.
3: The press used to ask me for many years, why is this going so slowly? And I think we're now going to have to get ready for a new question coming from the press is, why is it going so quickly?
0: While the Kyoto Protocol made people feel good because it offered clear emission reduction targets, it provided no means of achieving them. And those means that did work, namely the flexible mechanisms like carbon trading, were often dismissed by purists as being imperfect. The Paris Agreement, on the other hand, offers global agreement on a million ways of getting things done, and it automatically adjusts to get more things done, while the SDGs offer a kind of overarching benchmarking apparatus.
3: With the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals, you have opened the opportunity to meet the climate change challenge to a great extent by fulfilling the 2030 agenda for sustainable development.
0: The Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Agreement fit together like yin and yang, and there are a million other initiatives that fit into this effort as well.
1: It is very clear that uh, also from, our, from Paris that although it's goal 13 and we talk about the other 16 goals, the reality is that probably more than half, I, I say certain, uh, probably 13 or 14 of the goals have climate change written into them. If you look at the goals of forestry or oceans or the development goals, the partnership, I would even say the goal number 16 of fragile states, etc. So climate change permeates the whole um, sustainable development uh Uh, goals and that makes it easier I think to link it now quite actively and fast to the SDGs.
0: The energy system is already changing and fast. More than 50 coal companies have gone bust in the last three years while solar and wind projects are spreading around the world from the United Arab Emirates to the southwestern United States to the villages of Somalia. But our planet's living ecosystems, our forests, farms, fields, oceans, streams, lakes and rivers, they're a mess. Even if we end all industrial greenhouse gas emissions today, we're looking at 1 degree Celsius or 1.8 degree Fahrenheit average increases in global temperatures, and that will wreak havoc on our agricultural systems. On top of that, if people don't have sustainable livelihoods, they'll be forced to farm unsustainably, as Norwegian Prime Minister Anna Solberg made clear, also in Davos.
1: If we don't reach the SDGs, if we don't manage this, it will not be possible. Because then a lot of countries will look for cutting down forests doing, uh, and not doing the investments in, in, in uh, uh, decarbonizing their economy because it will mean losing jobs. So we have to find alternative ways of creating
0: those jobs. Let's get even more specific. Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, is the largest producer of cocoa.
4: But uh, I will say that uh, the production eats a lot
0: of forests. That's Daniel Duncan. Prime Minister of Cote d'Ivoire, explaining the challenge of growing cacao, the tree that gives us cocoa. It's a ravenous plant that sucks nutrients out of the soil if you grow it densely or without the right nutrients. And cash-strapped farmers often have no choice but to do just that if they're to feed their families. And, as a result, they end up chopping more virgin forest. But the question, says Duncan,
4: is... How to do so that we'll not cut the forest in Cote d'Ivoire? we have to to have an agriculture which should be friendly i would say with the environment well in that case we have to to use more fertilizer to use more less land to use more irrigation and the well mechanization if you do that we can have the same production all within lesser land uh, in cote d'ivoire That is not for cocoa but for all the agriculture. We have a program called the uh, five-year agriculture program uh, of about four billion U.S. dollars. Sixty percent will be uh, contribution from the private sector. And uh, Mr. Paul uh, of uh, Unilever are contributing to the private sector financing.
0: So, to save forests, Cote d'Ivoire, like Indonesia, like Brazil, and like scores of other tropical countries, has to overhaul its agricultural system and it's tapping private sector money to do so. And that brings us back where we started, Ethiopia's soda reforestation project. I learned of it through an article called Emissions Reduced, Lives Saved, New Metrics for the New Normal, which my guest, Ali Goldstein, wrote for Ecosystem Marketplace. You can find the article at ecosystemmarketplace.com, forward slash articles, forward slash SDGs, or SDGS. Ellie has spent the better part of the past year speaking with companies that use voluntary carbon markets to reduce their carbon footprints. And she also talked to people who develop these carbon projects because she wanted to understand their views on non-carbon co-benefits, which are all those community and biodiversity benefits, the jobs, the improved soil fertility the replenished wells, the restored habitat, etc., the stuff that brought groups like World Vision into the carbon markets. In theory, projects that generate lots of co-benefits should attract higher prices from buyers, and she wanted to see if that's happening or not. She published her findings in a report called Not So Niche, Co-Benefits at the Intersection of Forest Carbon and Sustainable Development, which you can find at that link I mentioned before, the one at ecosystemmarketplace.com forward slash articles, forward slash SDGS, or SDGs. Unfortunately, she couldn't really say for sure whether or not high co-benefits translate into high prices, but she did find that co-benefits are hard to pitch, for lack of a better word, because there aren't many globally agreed-on benchmarks beyond carbon standards. The SDGs, it turns out, might just change that. In describing the Soda Reforestation Project, she talked about an impact report, and I asked her first to tell me what that was exactly?
5: What the project is is marketing and selling mainly is the carbon emission reductions, which are um, which are measured in units of tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. But so that is what has to be measured by you know a third party auditor that goes to the project. So the impact report sought to kind of go beyond that um, most. Carbon projects also aim to deliver other social and environmental benefits. So, the impact report meant to, to quantify those and, and present them in a way that was understandable to uh, a company that was potentially investing in the project. Um, so, this one actually went household to household to survey people about the project impacts, which was you know, a very on-the-ground and in-depth approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Why do um, developers focus on co-benefits?
5: It's it's often because actually achieving the climate impact is not possible without also achieving sustainable development. So for many projects, the the, the two really go hand in hand. And philosophically, the reason we want to achieve a, a stable climate is you know so people everywhere can have have a good life um, you know it's kind of a chicken or the egg you kind of can't have one without the other
0: yeah and I guess I, mean, I guess what, what I find really interesting in these in these projects is how what people in the carbon world call a co-benefit is so often how the carbon is generated if you're dealing with with people who um, so, you know say they're being forced to deforest because they don't have other sources of income, and then you come along with a, a carbon project that provides other sources of income or helps them commercialize their farms more effectively, that then takes the pressure off the forest. I mean, so so you have these projects that where in some ways, the carbon is, is almost a byproduct, right?
5: Right. I mean, some people actually oppose the term co-benefits because... You know the the things that fall into the category of the co are, you know, land tenure reform, indigenous peoples' rights, food security. Um, so th- I mean they're they're co in the sense that they're I guess co to the the ton of carbon, which is the typical unit of transaction on the carbon market. But you know they're certainly not co or secondary in the context of those communities and also, you know, most people's goals about why they're involved in the carbon market in the first
0: place. And, and there's always been this, um, this sense on the, this, the part of project developers that, um, offsets generated by projects that have a lot of co-benefits should attract a higher premium because they're, they're actually providing more. They they should, they should attract a higher price when they go to sell them and your findings are that this isn't happening is that is that correct
5: uh yeah the findings are that essentially that we couldn't detect a clear price premium so carbon is not really a commodity in that um you know the prices really vary transaction to transaction they're based on you know A negotiation between a buyer and a seller and i think there's just kind of a lot of noise in the data uh in terms of um the the main factor i guess that we've found affecting prices is is really the size of the transaction so for instance a red project might might deliver a lot of amazing co-benefits but it avoids deforestation over you know sometimes hundreds of thousands of hectares so uh Projects are able to, to verify and transact half a million or a million tons of emissions reductions a year. So just that volume means that they can offer offer lower prices, and you know, s- still get an, an, enough capital in some cases to to actually implement those activities. Whereas a, a tree planting project, um, you know, it takes. Time for, for trees to grow and the the payoff in terms of the emissions reductions is often uh is often smaller and unless the project is really really massive um so and, and tree planting projects do s- typically sell offsets at higher prices so we we often see differences across project types and across kind of project size um and that kind of obscures uh what we might call a a price premium,
0: if that makes sense. So, so the value of these co-benefits, it, it could be a lot higher.
5: I think the value is captured by the fact that, you know, companies like Disney and Microsoft and, and the Dutch Post and all of these major private sector buyers, they wouldn't be involved at all in the carbon markets if, if it weren't for the co-benefits that projects delivered. So i mean it's very difficult to put you know uh, a number or or a percentage on it but um a large portion of the you know um, almost 5 billion dollars that have been um that have changed hands in the voluntary carbon market over the years um, is is due to the fact that that projects do have have benefits other than and climate protection,
0: but how how are these co-benefits gener- generally quantified?
5: Well, they're quantified in in different ways, I guess. Uh, the report that Ecosystem Marketplace just put out called called "Not So Niche" uh, kind of goes into this in detail. But there are a, a few different standards uh, that forest carbon project developers use that. Provide a framework for, uh, for verifying co-benefits. Uh, so some of the main ones are the Gold Standard and Plan Vivo, which both embed um, co-benefits into the carbon offset. There's the Verified Carbon Standard, which is purely a carbon standard, but it's all often used in conjunction with. Uh, the Climate, Community, and Biodiversity Standards, which provide a a framework for social and environmental safeguards. Uh, And there's a few others. So the Fair Trade Climate Standard, for instance, just launched in uh, December 2015. So there's lots of innovation in this space. Um, So far, our conclusion was sort of that most co-benefit standards provide a framework for how to measure, but they're not going to necessarily specify which metrics to use. Uh, there are certain principles, for instance, uh, the principle of, of free prior and informed consent um, that you have to you know, actively engage a community that's, go- that's going to be impacted or involved in the project um, that kind of cut across all of, all of the standards. But part of what the report did was to ask project developers themselves what they were able to, um, what co-benefits they were able to actually measure and how they did that. So, some were fairly straightforward, such as as jobs, you know how many people you employ that's something that most project developers track when it came to other impacts such as such as climate adaptation, for instance um, or even even biodiversity. Um, I mean, a lot of project developers. You know, they might do a biodiversity survey and observe which endangered or threatened species appear in the project area, uh, but there's not necessarily um, sort of decided upon metrics that all projects use.
0: Okay, and is it is it accurate to say that the sustainable development goals then are are kind of creating this sort of standardization?
5: Um. A bit, yeah. So as far as I know, there's something like 169 SDG indicators. And and project developers are starting to look at those and say, hey, we already measure some of this stuff. And perhaps if we frame what we're already doing in terms of the SDGs, you know, the, the attention around um, the... The both public and private sector finance that will that will flow towards achieving those 17 global goals. You know, that could be advantageous to us.
0: Ellie Goldstein, senior carbon associate at Ecosystem Marketplace and author of the report Not So Nish, co-benefits at the intersection of forest carbon and sustainable development. You can learn more about her findings at ecosystemmarketplace.com, forward slash articles, forward slash SDGS or SDGs. You're listening to Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whichever service you use to access us. And give us a good, honest review. Because the better reviews we get, the more ears we get. And the more ears we get, the more understanding we can spread. If enough people listen, we might even get some funding. And that's important, too, because right now, Bionic Planet has none. It's a labor of love. And I'm both the labor and the love. It's written by me, produced by me, and distributed by me. I'll be drawing on content we've created at Ecosystem Marketplace. If you want to offer feedback, or even better, advertise on Bionic Planet, reach out to me directly at steve at bionic-planet.com. Once again, that's steve at bionic-planet.com. You can also help us financially by clicking on the support button at bionic-planet.com. That about wraps up this edition of Bionic Planet, but first a few parting thoughts from Paul Pullman. The cost
1: of this is two to three trillion a year just to implement the SDG agenda. Uh, ODA is 140 million, some other pledges that are made. It cannot happen if we don't unlock the enormous amounts of money in the private sector. And the private sector also understands increasingly more so that there is no business case in enduring poverty that they have to get involved.
0: But where is that money going to come from?
1: If women in this world have the same rights as men, the calculations are that the global economy would be $37 trillion bigger. If the energy situation, hopefully sustainable energy situation, would be given to all the people, that's $18 trillion. If we give the people decent homing with urbanization, the population growth, the cities that we need to build, those are investments of 90 trillion. And the way we do this is going to decide how we're going to live in the future. So we'll put a lot of emphasis on making this business case a case of opportunity, and many businesses are starting to understand that.
0: We are in a period of tremendous upheaval and change, and change brings opportunity. That means winners and losers, but it also means innocent victims, and that's what we need to guard against. We won't get through this mess with an every-man-for-himself mentality, but we also won't get through it with slogans and bromides alone. If we properly navigate our way through the next five years, then the opportunities of the ensuing decades will come to those who provide solutions that are fair and equitable. And in the coming months, we'll meet people who are trying to do just that. I hope you keep listening, and I apologize for the erratic production schedule and maybe the funky background noise you heard today because I'm recording from my noisy apartment in Chicago. I'll have another episode tomorrow, and then another in a week or two. After that, we'll try to be more regular. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening.